I invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to be doing a uh, corporate reading this morning from a text that may be new to some of you. I'm kidding. It's Psalm 23. You guys may even know that by heart. Um, but we are going to be standing and reading this, so I'm going to give you time to turn your Bibles to it. Um, but I've been tasked today to try to uh, preach about a very small topic, a, a very easy to, to quantify topic, uh, that's the love of God. Um, his, his love surely is not so big that it takes the entire Bible to, to write about it, right? So I, I actually really struggled to get the content together in such a way that it was um, small. God's love, as I was going through and reading in our scriptures, is so grand that to even have a, an effort at tackling the, the meaning of the word of his goodness proved to be a difficult task. And so uh, I hope that this will be an informative and a very uh, encouraging message for you today. Um, and uh, anyway, so I just want to build you up with that. Um, but as we get on with our lesson, I want to uh, share with you one of my favorite things about Sundays. Uh, probably one of my th favorite things about Sundays is I love church, I really do. After church, when I'm heading home, uh, I like to turn on the radio because my favorite radio program is on right around lunchtime on Sundays. It's on National Public Radio, and the program is called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Are anybody here familiar with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Okay, okay. Kind of the people who I expected to like it, like it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Um, one of the things that, that makes this show kind of fun is it's lighthearted. They have sometimes old celebrities come in and they host it. They do uh, little games where they guess the ends of sentences and things like that. Um, but one of my favorite games that they play is, is a game of limericks. They basically, they, they, they read a limerick. Usually it has something to do with some sort of current event or local news story. It's usually a feel-good thing. Um, but then the caller who's listening in on the phone, they have to try to guess what the last word of the limerick is, and then if they guess three, I think it's two out of three, if they guess two out of three of the limericks, then they get a prize. So we're going to play that game here. I'm going to read a, a couple of limericks to you um, because we're preaching about God's love. Uh, it, they're topic on how people have shown either me or my wife love this last week. And um, your goal is to guess what the last word is. And so um, if you know what it is, just yell it out. Uh, winner gets uh, treasures it in heaven. And uh, talk with Jen Hyman. She's in charge of payroll. I'm sure she could uh, arrange treasures in heaven for you guys. So the look on her face, she was not expecting that. All right. We're going <laughs> to... The, what's the first of the potluck? Yes, the winner gets to be first of the potluck. All right, let's go ahead and we'll play. I'll just uh, gesture to you guys, and you guys try to guess what the word is. Jacob's fond of tribal milieu. His necklaces are quite sure to thrill you. He gave one to me, and I thanked him, you see. He then said, don't eat them, they'll kill you. Yes, uh, Jacob, he, he's from Brazil, and he wears these very funky necklaces, and they have animal teeth, and he gave me one with howler monkey teeth on it, and then he said, by the way, those beads are made out of a kind of a seed. One of them's enough to kill a grown human. I thought, thanks, that's awesome. All right, next one. It's good to keep preaching concise, so I used an electronic device, but when I started, it failed. Still, our dear Cindy regaled, hey, at least your introduction was... 
Nice, yes. Um, I was uh, tasked to, to teach the youth last week, and uh, I had this really complicated lesson that I was going to go through on my tablet, and we were going to exegete the passage together. And then, of course, right when we started, my tablet decided to do an update cycle, and uh, I felt so bad, but Cindy, she was so wonderful, she called me right after, and she said, Jeff, that was the best introduction, it was so good. So, <laughs> some people just really know how to love, you know, in the, in the most vulnerable of moments. Um, all right, last one. My son's tender heart is quite bright. He asks if we're feeling all right. One day, heart aflutter, my wife told what was the matter, but he said, stop, mom, I was just being polite. <laughs> polite, oh, somebody missed that one, okay. Uh, yeah, um, my son's very sweet, but uh, my wife was talking with him in the car. She was telling him uh, the story of what was going on, and he said, mom, <laughs> I was just being nice. I don't need to know. So... <laughs> Um, sometimes it's easy to feel loved. Uh, it's the gifts that people give, whether they're words or things or the actions that they do, but it's these things that make our lives feel richer with love. Of course, having great friends helps. Being appreciated helps. Being part of a loving church helps. I think having kids sometimes doesn't help. But suffering helps. We have to look for it. But going through times of trials and deep suffering are opportunities ripe with discovering that we are loved by God. Pain helps us to feel love. Pain like our family has been feeling the last couple of weeks. Uh, we just received, um, over the last couple of weeks, we had received some really just disappointing news in our family. Uh, on top of that, at Thanksgiving, our my father was demonstrating symptoms of what we thought might be Alzheimer's. We found out this week that it's a brain tumor. Uh, we were then told that um, every year around Christmas we get some dividend payouts, and, and uh, we were told just before Christmas this year that this company would be no longer giving out dividends until further notice, and so we were pretty disappointed with that. Um, on top of that, our refrigerator broke. There's a lot of awful things, but the whole time my wife and I were sitting here and we were thinking to ourselves, it's, it's bad, but at least we're having a baby. And then um, we're not sure what happened. We're not sure if it was a, an early pregnancy miscarriage or if it was, um, we don't know what it was, but as soon as we found out, uh, our sorrow just overflowed. It was so hard to get one thing after the next of just being beat down. And if it weren't, to be honest with you, if it weren't for some very quiet and measured talks with a few men at our church, I think I would have gone over the edge. Discerning that you are loved by God in those times is hard. It's a difficult lesson to learn and painful to complete. But when we don't want to love, the Lord uses pain to draw us close to Him. While He does break us, he, prov he proves His love by lovingly restoring us. Or as Job 5.18 says, He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal. It's the perfect way to cause me to remember that though this life is hard, though I feel pain, His love is perfectly pictured to the severity with which He restores and redeems. How great is His love? And that's what we will be talking about today. 
So stand with me, if you will, and we're going to be reading Psalm 23 together. Um, I will be reading from the ESV. If you read another version, um, we'll send you a letter and let you know. <laughs> or just whisper so you don't throw people off, I guess. I'm kidding. Um, let's go ahead and start with verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Today we're going to be talking about the fourth item of Advent, that is the love of God. Um, specifically, the love as shown through him being a shepherd. When we look at the love of God, we see that uh, Lamentations 3.22 says that God's love is characterized by two things, that it is steadfast, we'll be talking about that in a little bit, but secondly, that it is never ceasing. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, Lamentations 3 says. To, to know what it is to be steadfast, like I said, we'll be talking about this towards the end of our lesson today, but I do want to focus on understanding God's love and how He says it is never ceasing. What does it mean for His love never to cease, to never stop? What does it mean? Does it, does it mean that it never decreases in its, in its quality? Does it mean that on top of that it endures for all times? To, to what extent? If we think about it, it may be difficult because mostly I'm not capable of loving for all times. I'm not capable of loving with love that never ceases. Understanding it is hard, but Psalm 8 helps us to know. If we look at Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, I think most of you know this passage. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars with which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalm paints a real reality that I think all of us struggle with. What am I that God would think of loving me? I am nothing. I understand that I am in no way the grandest of all his creations. I'm not even the grandest of all of his people. I don't think I may be even grandest, be grandest in all of the people in my home. It's a real struggle for us to understand that he is mindful of us despite our lacking quality. And yet what it says is that though he recognizes we are not the grandest of his creations, he uniquely is mindful of us. You might say that he fills his mind with us. That word mindful in Hebrew means, means to cause oneself to recollect. It's a word that emphasizes a constant choice to remind oneself to remember and it has had a very appropriate setting in Hebrew court over the centuries 
where that word is used of, from, uh, from one council to remind the other, I think you are forgetting a, a law that is applicable to this situation. To fill his mind with us, to be mindful of us, paints the picture that God not only remembers us, but that he is constantly forcing himself to remember. He's constantly filling his mind with thoughts of you and me. It's the kind of love that we would expect from a God of his caliber, but it's also the exact kind of mental exercise that we would expect from a shepherd. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 says, he tends his flock like a shepherd, gathering them in his arms, and he will carry them near to his heart. You are all expert expositors, I'm sure, so you probably noticed that in Psalm 23, God calls himself our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a favorite word of his, in fact. Out of the 138 times in the Old Testament where the word shepherd is used, 25% of them are in reference to himself in one fashion or another. Either he is referring to himself as being our shepherd directly, or he is referring to us as being his sheep. Or, as we read in Ezekiel 34 today, he uses the word shepherd to describe his servant whom he would send, David, or the one that we would know as Jesus, who is the son of Abraham the son of David, as Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says. When it comes time for Jesus to demonstrate the reality that he is the shepherd and the agent of love sent by God, he demonstrates in the feeding of the 5,000 in Psalm 6 that he is the Ezekiel 34 shepherd. He sees the crowd, he sees that they are hungry, He should be annoyed with them. They are coming to bother him at his time of rest. And yet, when we read Mark chapter 6, it says that he looked at them and he loved them with compassionate love because, quote, they were sheep with no shepherd. This is a direct uh, correlation and a reminder to the reader of the promise that God gave in Ezekiel 34 to say that we are sheep with no shepherd, because our shepherds, the spiritual leaders of the world, are awful. So therefore, he takes it upon himself to be our shepherd, and he would send his servant, David, Jesus, to be the shepherd who we need so desperately. God's love is a shepherd love, and the shepherd through whom he loves us is Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that today. And and, and I'm sorry for all the Bible verses that we have on screen. Um, It is a little bit of a, a, uh, what do they call it, a a flood of information. But it's important to see how, how robust his theology and promises are of how he says that he will love you in a specific way. The more that we know about his love, the more that we can be loved and know that we are loved. Otherwise, he loves us and we are ignorant of that fact. So, I I invite you to read these verses carefully with your, your time and your heart. Jesus is the perfect gift of God's love, isn't he? He shows God's love in many ways. Primarily, the, the easy one is that he, he loved us by laying down his life for our sins. 
right? John 15, 13 says, no greater love has one than this, that one should lay down their life for their friends. And 1 John 4, 10 says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. His love is demonstrated by dying on the cross for our sins while we were still sinners. The love is great, but Jesus also proves that he is the demonstration of God's love and that Jesus is in his actions loving. He's loving in his death, but he's also loving in his living life. He spent his days teaching that our whole duty is to love, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Matthew chapter 5. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, Mark chapter 10, and we are to love the Lord with our whole being. In fact, I'm not, I don't think it would surprise you to find out that of all the times that love is mentioned in the New Testament, 50% of them are referring to Jesus. Either His actions, which are demonstrated as being loving, or it's His commands, which He commands to love. 50% of all the things of love are Jesus within the three-year life of His ministry on earth. Jesus did it, and then it took 15 people or so, about 60 years and 27 books, to describe how well He did it. Jesus is a loving machine, but what I want to talk to you about today is what we so rarely talk about. Not that He loves, but that He loves as a shepherd, and that He loves us by giving what is required of all shepherds to give in their love his presence, that he is with us, that his name itself means God with us, that if God should love us with his presence, it's the greatest gift that we can give. And it's my opinion that I might start a fight here, but I think that's better than a sloppy wet kiss, okay? Any David Crowder fans out there, you can fight with me in the <laughs> flagpole at three o'clock after church. Let's go. Um, no, Jesus loves us as a shepherd, and He loves us that way by giving us His presence. And so, look with me how Jesus fulfills His shepherding ministry with us, His demonstration of love towards us as a shepherd by giving us Himself and His presence. And what we will be doing is we will be looking at the way He does this as He says in Psalm 23. And the first way that God gives us His love, His shepherding love, is that He gives us His presence in provision. When my niece, this is my wife's sister's daughter, when she was younger, uh, she found out very quickly that the center of the watermelon is the sweetest part of the watermelon. You guys know what I'm talking about. By the time you get to the bottom of the, the triangle, it's that white, just, it's just water, right? Maybe a little bit of like rind in it, but there's no flavor, uh, but we eat it because we're responsible. We don't like to waste food. Well, my, uh, my niece, what would happen is uh, my, my sister-in-law, she would cut up a watermelon into triangles, set them out, walk away, come back, and find out uh, someone had just like taken a bite off of all the tips, <laughs> just eating them, right? She knew where the sweet part was. She liked it. My son, Tristan, uh, my oldest, he's the opposite. Uh, that kid doesn't want anything. In fact, it drives me nuts. True story. This week, he was supposed to go to a birthday party, and as he was, um, 
as he was getting ready to go, uh, he told my wife, I don't want to go. Well, why don't you want to go to this birthday party? Because they'll have candy there and I shouldn't be eating candy. <laughs> he looks like me. I don't think he's mine. Actually, Michelle McKim texted me this week that um, he was offered a piece of candy and uh, he said, no, I didn't finish my dinner. Mommy said I couldn't have it. So, <laughs> anyway, we need to talk with that kid. <laughs> so he doesn't like things. And then there's my youngest, Evan, who wants everything but only so he could throw it in the trash can or down the basement stairwell or hide it behind the television or whatever, right? And my point is this. We're picky or we're demanding or we hate what we're given, but whatever the scenario is, what we are given is so rarely able to satisfy completely. And yet, if the Lord is giving, Psalm 23 says, I shall not want some translations say, I shall perceive I lack no good thing. If the Lord gives, He gives to perfection. If He provides, He's perfect in His provision, and it is accomplished all by His presence as our shepherd. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3 says this, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We talked briefly about the word shepherd. What it might, it might surprise you to find out that the word shepherd in Hebrew is not actually a, a noun. It's not a, a title to, to talk about the, the job of somebody. But rather the word shepherd, it's, it's a verb. Uh, most of the time when we encounter the word shepherd in the Old Testament, it's really a verb that, that means the, the, the shepherding one, the, the shepherder or something to that effect, right? Uh, we translate it into a lot of ways. Um, sometimes the word shepherd is translated as to feed or to cause to graze or to drive out to pasture, to protect, to revive, to nourish, tend, keep, or care. The, the, the word shepherd is not about the person who's doing the shepherding, but it's about how they execute that love through which they love their sheep. And how beautiful of a picture that is. Because when God says that He's our shepherd, what He's doing is He's, he's describing the way through which He chooses to love us. And specifically, if it's a shepherd that He claims to be, then what we find is that he loves us by actions of love in provision. If you want to take it even further, he's not even celebrated in Scripture as being loving in concept, but Psalm 23 says that he's my shepherd. Every Christian who I know struggles with the understanding that God could love me specifically. He loves everybody else. Everybody else is regaling the blessings that they've gotten, my life's a mess. I, I contend that most of the time I feel that God loves all of you, but I wander in and out of God's love in my own personal life. That's, that's a struggle that I identify with. And most people who I talk to in my, my pastor's office, I would say that they reveal the same thing. I think it's a universal struggle. We all struggle with that. God loves the corporate, but when it comes down to the individuals, He's choosy. 
But that's not what this says. Instead, it says that he loves me because he is my shepherd. I'm essential to his love. So much so that if I were to leave the group, he says that he leaves the 99 to get me because his love is not perfectly demonstrated unless I'm included in his love. I actually had a friend who put it this way based off of the Good Shepherd parable. He said that if you were the only person who ever sinned, ever, if, if everyone else never sinned, but you did, he still would have gone to the cross to die for your sins because the Lord is my shepherd. And I believe that. He's a personal shepherd. And all the way through Psalm 23, we see that he never talks about it as being Israel's guard. He's my guard. He's my shepherd. He's my provider and protector. And how does he love me? Well, according to my quick reading in verses 1 through 3, we see that Scripture says that he loves as a shepherd by providing us in three ways. First, he provides for us by laying us down in green pastures. Secondly, he provides by leading us beside still waters. And thirdly, he provides for us by leading us in paths of righteousness. And when he gives those three things, it says that one, verse three, our souls are restored. My soul is restored. And two, I shall not want anything except what he should provide. Verse one, he gives and provides perfectly to the point that I should want nothing else. First, our shepherd provides that we are laid down in green pastures, and then we can throw in there that he leads us beside still waters. In Ezekiel 34, God commands the spiritual leaders of, uh, condemns the spiritual leaders of Israel because they go out to eat in the pasture, but they tread on all the grass so that nothing else can eat it. Or they go and they drink of the cool waters, but they track in mud so that nothing else can drink of it. And instead of feeding the sheep, they slaughter them for their wool and meat. And instead of gathering them in, they prod them with their horns and drive them out and shove them with their shoulders so that they can no longer be gathered with into the fold. This is the spiritual leaders of the world. But what others hoard and abuse for their own advantage, Jesus says that he gives freely and abundantly, so freely that we lack none of what is good. It is satisfying. The picture of green pastures typically symbolizes food. It symbolizes provision of our necessaries. In this, we see that Jesus provides us freely of what we need to live. Matthew 5, verse 32 and 33 says that he already knows what we need, that he is in, in great practice of giving everything in creation what they already need to eat, whether it be bird or grass or flower. He provides all of it with what it needs. And that he's eager to give if only we seek him and his kingdom. But it's more than that. Green pastures are known where provision is not only available, but it's the picture where it's, it's available to full capacity. A, a, a green pasture is a place where the ground is so lush and green that a, a sheep needs not wander from patch to patch to eat, but rather he can just sit and eat and be satisfied without sweat of brow or toil and labor. They just eat. And in a world where the Genesis 3 curse 
says that we would eat the weeds of the field and earn it by the sweat of our brow, we see that Jesus' provision is so great because He desires in His provision to undo the curse of sin and suffering and toil. The greatest demonstration of this that He did is the feeding of the 5,000, where He sees the hungry people, gathers them into little flocks of 50 people or so, sits them down, and gives them their food without any effort from them to toil or work for it. He just provides. Listen, I don't mean that you'll be free from labor in this life. In this life, Jesus provides graciously, but to what end, I'm not sure. I think it's case by case. As a principle, Psalm 37 says that God does not make a practice of of letting His children go out begging for bread. We know that. We know that He's able to give us our clothing, our food, right? To give us the things that we need to the point that we need not be anxious. We know that. That's Matthew chapter 5. But the feeding that He gives in in the feeding of the 5,000 is really uh, symbolic of what He endeavors to give in eternity, that as Revelation 7, 16, and 17 says, that at that time we shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb of God is in our midst, and He will be our shepherd, guiding us to the living waters and wiping away the tears of struggle for eternity. This is the promise He gives. The still waters is the second provision that he gives, and it's impossible to separate the two from each other because they're both consumed. And it could be said that, that he leads the sheep beside still water so that they can be refreshed with, with cool water. And, and I have to say, yes, that's important. Still waters are important for sheep. It's very dangerous for them to go and drink from a roaring river. They could be swept away. It's dangerous. But I don't think that this is specifically talking about the way that God chooses to cool us, but rather in regards to a shepherding activity, the cool, calm waters are where the shepherd would go into the water with the sheep and then wash them of their blemishes and cleanse them of their wounds and bind their bodies and heal them. Ezekiel 34 is leaders did not heal the sick or bind their wounds, but the Lord Jesus goes into the water with us, with His sheep, and heals us of our suffering and sorrows. Again, in this life, to what end? I'm not sure. But He did spend His entire ministry healing and I think for a reason. We all know people who have been miraculously sustained in life by the healing of the Lord. We pray, all of us, in hopes that we would receive such healing from Him. And some of us are lucky enough to get it. But again, I think that this picture of leading us beside still waters and healing us is the picture of a foretaste of what is to be in eternity, where neither death nor sorrow nor disease nor tears nor any pain whatsoever should ever be in our lives anymore, for those former things will be gone forever. I have a friend who struggles with chronic pain. He, he is MS. He faints. He, he can't see. He had to stop working. He had to retire at the age of 42, I think. It's just a, a very pride-swallowing disease that he got. And when we would talk, he would pull out his book, his Bible, and turn to Revelation 
20, verse 4, and he would read, for there will neither be suffering nor pain nor death nor any of these things anymore. And he would look at me and say, that means something to me. We so often forget that the curse of this world is more than the minor annoyance. It kills us. It's designed to kill us because this world has nothing in it that's worth living for except that we may be redeemed out of it to Jesus in eternity. And this is the promise that He gives. And this is the biggest portion that we're talking about today, so I just wanted to spend time in it. But uh, those are the first two ways He provides by uh, green pastures and still waters. But uh, verse 3 said that there's a third way that He provides. And the third way that He provides is that He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. If you look closely, the teaching of righteousness is positioned after restoring my soul, but what comes before restoring my soul is the provision. And it's in such a way to show that the leading in righteousness is just as responsible to restoring me as the provision that He provides. You cannot say that I am provided for if the teaching is not there. It's the idea that food and rest play an important part in tranquility. But the heaviest contributor to the destroyer of our peace is knowing that we have fallen in sin. And the best way to be resolved of that is to be taught how to learn righteousness and obey. It's the godly understanding that the suffering we experience, sin is the biggest breaker of our hearts. And it's the understanding that the truest provision that we could ever get from Him, therefore, is to give us that we no longer be found in personal guilt. Which is why when Jesus fed the 5,000, He saw that they were, quote, sheep without a shepherd, and He did provide. He did. But what does it say He did immediately before that? He taught them. He taught them in the ways of righteousness. He taught them His Word. Psalm 119.18 says, my soul is consumed with longing, and my soul clings to the dust, but give me life according to your word. Provision provides for want, but the teaching restores from dread. And this is the nature of the ministry that Jesus does as our shepherd, giving us his presence so that when he is with us, he may provide to the extent that we want no other thing. That's the first big one. The second thing that Jesus does to shepherd us in His love is that He gives us His presence in protection. Have you guys ever seen those YouTube videos of dad saves? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, here's one. I love the look. Like, the dad's just like, I got it. And the son's like looking at his phone like, huh? I almost died? What? If you go on YouTube and you look at these dad save videos, it's amazing. There's these dads who like outrun speeding trains, like grab their kids. They like backflip over a couch and catch their kid by their head, right? And they do it all without spilling their beer, it seems like. They're just fantastic. God gives dads these amazing abilities to just be these acrobats of salvation. Dads are amazing that way. Most are. I'm not. <laughs> My son, Evan, uh, I was standing right next to the stairwell uh, to the basement, and we have a, one of those safety things for babies, um, and uh, I'm standing right there talking with my wife, right? And I'll, uh, I'll just hear this, dun, 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 thud, right? 
and I look over at him, and he's lying there on the floor, dazed and confused, and I go, ah, shoot! <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not so good, <laughs> right? Um, and my wife was looking at me like, where is the superhero dad that you two promised me? I, where is he? Dads are sometimes so good because they can protect, but Jesus loves us perfectly as our shepherd because he gives us his presence and his perfect protection. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. While we don't often think of it, a shepherd's main duty is to protect. Like that, That's the purpose for which they exist. We think they exist so I can have little socks, right? Or, or a really bad shepherd sells his lambs for mutton, right? But the purpose of a shepherd is not to provide the, the farming fruit that they produce, but the heart of the shepherd in the perspective of the sheep is that they're there to protect the sheep. And so, as a shepherd, Jesus protects his sheep from evil so that, as Ezekiel 34 says, that they are not devoured by the wild beasts as they go wandering for food on every green hill. The greatest example of Jesus' demonstration of protection, I think, it's huge, is in Luke 22 when Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, and I stopped it, <laughs> right? The, the, the picture of shoving him through a sieve and coming out looking probably like spaghetti, right? Just, just destroying Peter is, is the goal of Satan, and Jesus stopped it. He protected him from evil. Do you remember how he did it? He prayed. He prayed for him. I tell you, if the prayer of a righteous person avails much, then the prayer of Jesus has got to be akin to being, having bulletproof armor, right? To have Jesus pray for you has got to be huge. But I want you to look at how Jesus protects. Is he our fortress? Yes. Is he our strong tower? Sure. If the Lord is for us, none can be against us. We acknowledge that. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 31. But are we spared from suffering even though he protects? No. Far from it. In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, and I have stopped it. But then immediately after that, he goes and tells Peter two things. First, you will deny me and wonder. And then he looks at the rest of the disciples and says, he who has no sword, sell his knapsack and get a sword, because times of trial are coming. Suffering will come. Even though Jesus is there to protect you, you will suffer. Verse 4 says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. We are protected in a way but that doesn't mean that we're spared from evil or suffering. One of the greatest struggles that we have as Christians is, is knowing that we are led in the paths of righteousness, and yet that righteousness that we do does not protect us from suffering. It's a great injustice in our own hearts. We look at it and say, if I'm obedient, I should not go through suffering. But Jesus says that we will suffer. 
And we have to rectify that and understand what Jesus intends to do. We will suffer even if we are righteous. Jesus made that clear, didn't he? I have said these things that you may have peace, for in the world you will have tribulation, John 16 says. He will give you not sparing from suffering, but in it he will give you peace. When we're suffering, the suffering will be great. That picture of the valley of the shadow of death It's a very vivid picture that describes how death hangs in the sky as we go low, and then it casts its deathly shadow over us, making the promise that no matter how far we go, death will always be the finality of our journey, and it's only a matter of minutes before it pounces and consumes us. The end of the journey is death, and so your sorrow will be great. But even though we suffer exquisitely, we will not fear that we will be consumed by evil because our shepherd is with us. He gives us his protecting presence. Psalm 23 verse 4 puts it this way. There are two ways how Jesus protects. First, Jesus is close enough that he uses his presence to beat away evil with the shepherd's, uh, the shepherd's rod. It's a rod designed to beat away the lions or the wolves, right? It looks like a, like a cudgel. You, just, you hit them and they run away. David says that he killed lions with this thing. I talked about how my father had a brain tumor. And we got news uh, on Friday, probably benign, and um, it's sitting in such a fashion, it's sitting on top of the brain underneath the skull, and they're pretty sure that the way they'll be able to treat it is, I'm not making it up, by like a liposuction. They just suck it out, right? Done, right? That lion was beat, and we rejoiced. Evil was there, and he crushed it. I mentioned our refrigerator broke. It was under warranty, and we got it fixed for free. We had no refrigerator for a week. That was annoying. What was more annoying is when I got the email. I was talking with him on the phone. I was like, "Uh, Jeffrey Drew, that's my name. And then she's like, wait, how do you you spell it? It's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. I said, wait, what? Yeah, Jeffrey Drew. I said, what? And she's like, is Drew your first name or your last name? Drew's my last name. My name is Jeff. It's, it's Jeffrey, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. So I got an email for the appointment confirmation. Uh, if you could read it, it says, Dear Drew Jeff Jeffrey. <laughs> so not all of the lions are defeated, but <laughs> most of them. But by his rod, my struggles are destroyed And by his rod I can be courageous as Joshua 1.9 commands, for he is with me wherever I go. Destroying evil before it has a chance to destroy me, because Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the nature by which Jesus shepherds us. But the context of verse 4 is that the lion isn't always defeated, isn't it? Sometimes instead, the, instead of getting the rod, we get the staff. The hook tool that the shepherd uses, not against the wolves, but against the sheep. When the sheep wander 
out of lack of trust because they perceive the danger to be too great to trust in their shepherd any longer, and they wander away. The shepherd takes it, hooks them, and says, no, you belong to me, brings him in and comforts him even though the danger is present. In Luke's story of the good shepherd, there's where he leaves the 99 to pursue the one. We see that. We're familiar with that one. But Luke's version says that when he gets the sheep who wandered away for lack of trust, picks up the sheep, places it on his shoulders, and sings songs of comfort and rejoicing all the way home. If a hook is the shepherd's tool to collect the sheep, then Jesus is the tool by which the Father brings me home to Him, reminding me that comfort is not found in the absence of suffering, but that comfort is found within the presence of my shepherd. He gives us His protecting presence. And the last one, and this will be it. First, He gives us presence and provision as our shepherd. Then He gives us presence and protection as our shepherd. And finally, Jesus gives us His shepherding love by giving us His presence in promise. Read with me Psalm 23, verse 5 through 6. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I got married to my wife, um, we went to Korea afterwards. We, we, we had, uh, she's from Korea, if you don't know, and we had a dinner with all of the people she used to work with, and uh, they all got just really drunk, right? There's actually this, um, there's, there's this drink they call makgeolli, and, and it comes in a big bowl, and they all have these little bowls, and they see how many bowls they can drink, and so they were just so drunk. And sure enough, one of them stood up and said, I wanted to marry her, but you got her. <laughs> Look on her face was horrified, right? And then another guy stood up. No, it was supposed to be me. I was supposed to marry her. And I'm sitting here looking at my wife. Just She's embarrassed even now remembering it. Um, she's like covering her face. Uh, <laughs> but I remember sitting there like, yeah, I win. <laughs> I got her. All these guys, they wanted her, but I got her. For years, girls didn't like me, but now the, guy, the girl that every girl or every guy wants, I'm the one who gets her, and I felt vindicated, right? It was great. I'm going to tell that story for the rest of my life. <laughs> when we go back to Korea, I remind them of that story. It's fantastic. I was vindicated. And not only did she love me, but she loved me well. One of the ways that Koreans love people is they feed them. When I first started working at a Korean church, they loved me so well that I gained something like 25 pounds my first year. The better fed you are, the more loved you are. That's their philosophy. My wife, by the way, she does that at home. Uh, when we got married, I remember standing at the altar, her before me, pastor's talking. I don't hear anything he's saying because I'm just enamored with this glowing angel before me. I have her hand, she looks at me and she whispers, by the way, I like fat guys. <laughs> and she's doing it. <laughs> I've gained 50 pounds since we got married, so. But the point is this, my, life, my wife loved me, she loved me by promising to love me forever, and in doing so, vindicated 
because I thought that I wasn't worth loving at all. And looking at the final part of our lesson today in Psalm 23, we say that the final way that Jesus shepherds is he promises us his presence for eternity and vindicates us and promises that we were always worthy to be loved. The way that the psalm illustrates this is by saying that we are invited to the table to eat with the Lord forever. You see, while a shepherd concerns himself with the feeding and protection of his sheep, the final duty of the shepherd is, is not to leave them out in the, in the pasture, but to bring them home, to bring them in. And our home as sheep isn't a cage or a pen, but rather it is at the very table of the shepherd himself, not as a sheep, but as it turns out, as his bride. And what's more is he loves me in the presence of my enemies. Being a Christian is hard, isn't it? You do not have the dignity available to, to the rest of the world. If you, are, if you have evil committed against you, you do not have the right to go out and revile them. You do not have the right to return evil for evil. Instead, you have to, to swallow your pride and pray for them and hope that there may be one day where you rejoice that they are saved. And that is a joyful activity for us. But it is very tiring, isn't it? It is hard. There are many days where I go knowing that most people who revile me will not repent. And I have to wonder what the fruit of it is. Many will mock and destroy and steal and never repent, and we are forbidden the dignity provided to every other person to revile or take revenge. And it's an exhausting task that we have before us. But in the end, we are given the presence of our shepherd and it will be in the presence of our enemies. It's a picture that though we are reviled and called evil by the culture, God will erect a table before them, pluck us out of the midst of their reviling, and set us at His table to, to, to shame all those who shamed us. We suffer now, but it is they who will live in eternal shame, for they will watch us be plucked out of a position of embarrassment and placed into the position that they thought they had. That we are celebrated by the Lord. And I have so few hopes other than that. I don't know what you guys hope for. Our suffering is great. And I have an eternal hope that I will one day be, be free from pain. But to have the Lord promise to me that my pain in this life will not be for nothing and that there will be justice. I'm allowed to hope for that. It is something that the Lord says is, is, is a great provision of His love, that those who take advantage of His children, He will take them to the greatest point of shame. He gives us a place at His table before our enemies. But in addition to that, verse 6 says, on top of that, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know how to exposit the word goodness. That's a big word. Eight letters. That's, that's a big word. To try to say that God is good, I, I, I don't know how that looks. I know that Psalm, Psalm 23 says that we are anointed with oil and that our happiness overflows. I know that in His goodness, Psalm 4 says that we have a joy greater than those who have abundance and much wine, but I don't know how to 
begin telling how great his goodness is. Mercy, I'm willing to take a stab at that. To be honest, I don't like the word mercy very much because it implies a non-eternal perspective. It seems to state that alive in this life you'll get mercy, which is true, but it seems that this psalm is speaking specifically of an eternal life. The NIV, I like. NIV says that surely your goodness and love will follow me. It's the same word that we talked about earlier, the steadfast love of God. It's the kind of love that only God can give. And what does he do with that love? He uses it to follow me. He uses it to pursue me. I'm hunted down daily by his love, by his steadfast, loyal love. Any Taylor Swift fans here? Boy, that was a weird switch, wasn't it? Any Swifties? Anybody? Okay, one. Awesome. Karma is my boyfriend, right? Great song? Hey, all right. Yeah. You guys need to get cultured. Come on. All right. <laughs> With Taylor Swift, no less, I guess. Um, but she's got this song where um, it says that uh, karma is a bounty hunter tracking you down step by step, town to town. What a picture, right? But I'm not concerned with karma because I'm too busy being hunted and pursued by the steadfast love of God. Psalm 103 describes how deep that love is. His love is characterized in that He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That is the nature of steadfast love. Why? Because His steadfast love is so great that it is high as the heavens are above the earth. It's limitless. It's without end. And it's that love that He uses to promise to me that He will bring me to Himself. I enjoy love now because I will enjoy love then. And the nature of it is that the love that He gives, He gives to sinless people, and I will be sinless then. But because of the finished work of Christ now, He does not deal with me according to my iniquities, but rather the love I will experience then He gives to me this day that I shall have His goodness and love all the days of my life and then into eternity. God promises to love us forever, that we will dwell with Him in His house forever, and that is where goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. How great it is that we have a God who loves us as a shepherd, amen? Well, what a great love it is, giving us His presence as shepherd in the form of His Son, His shepherd, His servant, Jesus Christ, God with us fulfilled in prophecy in every way that the Lord intended to bring us to Himself in presence and peace, presence and provision, presence and protection, and presence in promise. And I would like to finish with this personal note. Jesus calls Himself the shepherd for a good reason and hopefully now an obvious reason. But know this, every pastor at this church likes to think of themselves as your shepherd. And, and it's not a, a, a sense of false humility if we wanted to be humbled, we're all married. That Our wives know our mistakes. They could point them out to us at any time, but they don't because they're gracious. And they love that they're married to men who want nothing more than to shepherd you. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it nearly as well as Jesus. But it is our purpose and privilege in life as your earthly shepherds 
to continue weekly to point you to the greatest of shepherds, Jesus Christ. And so, from I, I so rarely get to do this, but um, from the bottom of, I think, all of our hearts, we would like to thank you so much for allowing us to be your earthly shepherds, for you trust much in us, and it is our greatest privilege to show you Jesus who is worthy of all of your love and trust. So let's pray as we close our service. Dear Father, we love you. We thank you. We know not how to love, not perfectly, but you show us that you do love perfectly as our shepherd. Help us to repent that we may not doubt you and that we may not fear the staff or the rod, but that we may look to you and say that comfort comes merely in your presence, and in that we get provision and promise. How good you are beyond what we deserve, but help us to enjoy it more that we may celebrate what a loving God you are. Thank you for all of this, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.